So there you go. I'm John Kane, and I welcome you to Let's Talk Native on this Tuesday, November 26th. While this program may not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do encourage, in some cases, start conversations. We do, uh, we don't do prayers, and we don't do buffalo speeches. We take a tough look at history, oppression, and survival. We talk about culture, the arts, politics, and identity. And we may step on a few toes along the way. But our real goal here is to bring people together by breaking down what separates us. We will take on the false narratives and provide critical thinking to all that is heaped upon us. And we do it all right here from the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. So let's talk native. But first, let me remind people that our audio streams live at www.letstalknative.com. And we stream live video of the show on our Facebook group page via uh, Facebook Live. Our shows are available as podcasts in your uh, favorite podcast platform. Uh, and uh, we take video of the show and we post it up on our YouTube channel, which is Let's Talk Native TV. So you can subscribe to our podcast by searching Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Um, and you can su- subscribe to our YouTube channel by going to youtube.com slash Let's Talk Native. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram at Let's Talk Native TV and on Twitter uh, at Let's Talk Native. I'm the host, and I'm assisted here in studio by Jake Proud, who is managing our uh, audio uh, and our, our video. Um, all right, I, I you know I posted a little bit of a, a, a commentary with the with the video, the subtle side of racism, I call it. And like I said, you don't have to wear a white hood uh, or wave a Nazi flag or a Confederate flag or have white power symbols or bumper stickers on your car be a racist it's much easier than that and and we see how easy it is because it's demonstrated um it's demonstrated so often because it is normalized so i want to talk about the subtle parts the subtle side of racism the stuff that most people think because the the world is so white dominant even though white people don't aren't the um the majority but they have create, created systems. I mean, I, I've talked about this before on the show, but I mean, for instance, the, uh, the legislatures in, the, uh, in, in many of the colonialized countries, including the United States, are, um, are white. The legislators are white. The, the presidents, the prime ministers, they're white. The lawyers are, are all white. Um, the judges are predominantly white. The uh, law enforcement, at least uh, you know the the administrators uh, are are white. Educators are white, and of course we have white allies, uh, arbitrators, which are kind of like judges, as, as we know they're not real judges. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about um, the the arbitration uh, issue again. A uh, couple of things that, that just come to mind, and and I feel like if I miss it from show to show, so I've you know got to revisit it a little bit, but. This whole idea of this the subtle nature of um, of racism. Uh, here's what here's what got me uh, even today. I'm listening to NPR and I'll listen to One uh, um, A. <clears throat> and now in this this show, they bring in callers. Not only did two separate callers 
But I also heard the host. They all referenced the word tribe or tribal or tribalism. And of course, always in a negative connotation, like it's primitive, it's backwards, it's uh, you know antisocial, it's uh, denying of facts and reality. That's that's the context that they use the word. Now, the crazy part is, if you grew up in the United States, your first exposure to the word tribe was probably again happy little pilgrims and happy little Indians. So your first exposure to that word probably had you connecting it to native people. Now that's not our word. I mean, uh, you know, Stephen Newcomb once asked the question: Did tribes exist before uh, before European contact? No, of course we the tribes didn't exist because that's not our concept. The idea that you know this is almost this primitive or animalistic way of viewing packs of people, right? <clears throat> no. So, but but again, the average American, um, regardless of, of color, just the average. You know, of course, when I say average American, most people all automatically think white because that's again the system, right? But the average American, the first time they heard the word tribe, it was usually in reference to to native people. Yet today, in the American vernacular of the of, of twenty nineteen, every time you hear hear the word tribe, tribal, or tribalism. Outside of native people now, because, you know, uh, we're going to pretend the word means something different when you apply it to us. But any other time it's used globally, I mean, if you're talking about the tribal regions of Pakistan or or um, the uh, you know, Congress uh, going tribal or whatever else uh, during the Kavanaugh hearings, every time you hear that word used by talking heads or even the average caller who calls into these uh, to speak with these talking heads, it's a negative thing. So how did that happen? Did the word change meanings? No, it didn't because it always meant that stuff. But, 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 but everybody, you know, kind of separated it, right? So, what does it mean that so many native people are still referred to, and and, and frankly, sometimes we refer to ourselves this way, in in a in a word that has all this negative connotation to it. Why? Because that's the way the system is built, right? That's the language. It's not our language. I mean, it's English, right? The system perpetuates this way of viewing people beneath you. So, even our white allies, even you know, uh, even even all the the do the do gooders out there who want to support native issues, they can't help themselves. <laughs> they just can't help themselves. They're going to say something offensive and not even know it. Even as the words come out of their mouth, they they don't even know it. So, and and we we see this all the time. I mean, look at Standing Rock; it, it was just amazing how much attention the white celebrities got. Right? You know, and it's it's like they they came there to save us, and of course they made their plea deals and got out of trouble and that kind of stuff. But if you listen to the language, if you listen to to what gets said by even our allies, look, there's a there's a play. That's being done out in Los Angeles. Uh, I, I can't think of the name of the play off the top of my head, but I just heard about it on um, uh, on uh, NPR today. And they're talking about this um, this playwright, and uh, her last name is Fast Horse. She's Lakota, and she was talking about um, the the challenges of, of trying to create an, a native play, and with not just a, a a full native cast, but even just with one cast member, because it, but it, because it's so difficult. Because they, we're, we've been so marginalized that 
it's easy for people to just assume that we don't exist or oh well we we can't find, we can't um we can't shoot fill that cast with with native people so you you listen her play was based on these do-gooders trying to do um trying to be um politically correct and trying to create a play about thanksgiving which all by itself is impossible but but they're trying to put a, a positive and they, they even hire somebody in in the play they hire somebody who is going to be their native consultant turns out she's not native she's just a white woman who plays a native person and they said yeah but we got a grant we need a native person i mean so the the way that this stuff even plays out you can hear it that that even the folks who, who are trying to help have these preconceived notions about what 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 has to be i mean when you look at what's happening and i've talked about this on the show a little bit about bolivia and and venezuela the assumption is that the indigenous people, as they rise in power, are, are just somehow ignorant. And they, they aren't as sophisticated. They aren't um, um, as, as civilized as, the, as their whiter counterparts, their, um, their European or Eurocentric counterparts. See, there's this, there's this foregone conclusion. <clears throat> I, I can't help but, but get back to, the, even the, to the Seneca battle with New York State. And again, be clear. We're dealing with a state, predominantly white people. The lawyers who represent the Seneca Nation are predominantly white. The law that got passed to to um, <laughs> to protect us, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, passed by white people. And why did it get passed by white people? Because the white Supreme Court <clears throat> ruled that the Cabazons could do gaming if the California if California's doing gaming. So what did our white overlords say? Well, we need to pass a law. We can't just have native people doing gaming what if the mob gets involved what if they're they're you know what if they don't do it right so the the assumption was that they needed to piece, pass federal legislation to regulate gaming once they realize okay we can't stop them from gaming you know supreme court says they can do it so we we got and not only we're we going to pass uh, um laws for um, to put the federal government in a role, we're going to pass a law and place the states who normally don't have a whole lot of authority over, you know, uh, what we do on our territories. But now, not on, under this legislation, so it, it, they pass a law just jamming the states into our business. Why? Because they're white people and they know better, and we're just we're just tribes. We're tribal. We're primitive. We're backwards. How could we manage something like a multi-billion-dollar industry without our white overlords? See, that's the assumption. Now, I know when I say it this way, it it doesn't sound like I'm being too subtle. Well, what if I what if I said it different? What if I said, well, the federal, federal government was really interested in trying to protect us. You know, they thought we'd be taken advantage of, and so um, to protect us from organized crime and from aggressive states, they passed the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, which would create a framework. Uh, so, so native gaming could could proceed in a way that was not going to be um, excessive, or in a way that um, uh, that it could be kept honest. Now that sounds a whole lot better, but you know what? It's still the same thing. In other words, we're too ignorant to do it ourselves, so they're gonna they're gonna pass laws to protect us, not to protect us. No, to empower them, because most of the, these laws don't get passed w- with our consent. Why? Well, we don't really need your consent. We say that, you know, that that, that you know the uh, um, 
just governance comes from the consent of the governed, but we don't really mean that because we're going to impose this upon you. So what IGRA does, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, it says that while the um, native gaming interests have to work out a gaming compact with the states. Now, there's nothing in the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act that says the states um, are entitled to anything other than perhaps, you know, uh, to be made whole or to be compensated for what their their out-of-pocket expenses may may be um, in assisting in the regulation of native gaming. So we're gonna not only, we're not only gonna make give the states the regulatory power, we're gonna make you pay for it. So yeah, that's that, so that's what's in, in Agra. Now it, it's clear that the states can't tax native uh, native gaming, but you know what? That that's what they say. But the general presumption is well. Clearly, the states got to get something out of it. Well, yeah, the, the native people got to pay something. They got to give something back. So that's the presumption. The pre, you know, there's already this underlying attitude. Well, of course they got to pay. And the fact that that this gaming that native people are doing is really funding their entire governance because we don't have taxing systems and we don't have all other stuff. Um, no, they're oblivious to that. So when this idea that that there could be entered into a um a revenue sharing agreement once that idea got you know uh, got got promoted there was no question that the state was going to get money out of the senecas for instance now the question is were, was the state going to give something in exchange for it so on paper they created this idea that the that the state would provide an exclusivity zone the problem is they didn't they didn't. I mean, because in order for the state to, to have made a concession to the Senecas, they would have had to say, okay, here is something that we could do, but we won't do in exchange for this revenue sharing. So we we aren't going to uh, 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 produce gaming ourselves. We're going to acknowledge that you have this exclusive right to do gaming, and we're going to protect, we're, we're going to grant you that, an exclusivity. We're going to give it to you. Now, to say that we're going to give it to you means that we could have done gaming in the first place, but they couldn't. But they couldn't. It was against the law. It was against the New York State con- uh, Constitution of the uh, uh, of New York State. It prohibited casino gaming. Now, again, lots of white people involved in this gaming compact stuff. Even the even the folks representing the Senecas were were all white people. So what do they come to terms with? Well, they come to terms with an idea. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna carve out a, a revenue sharing from your slot machines, from your class three slot machines. Now, why did they make that distinction? Well, because the state always knew that they were going to do gaming. The state always knew that they were going to do they were going to compete directly against the Senecas. Maybe not with class three gaming, but with class two gaming. Which today, if you walk into a class two gaming facility. Those slot machines look exactly like the slot machines in uh, in at the Seneca casinos. So they could play the game. Oh well, no, we're not going to compete directly against you. We might do these other video lottery terminals, but we're no, we're not going to we're not going to do slot machines like you have. Well, that's not entirely true because now these what they call video lottery terminals they're slot machines by by almost any definition of of the of the word. Their slot machines. The, you know, the one distinction was that a slot machine spit out coins, right? Back in the day, if you're if you're only a recent uh, gambler, 
now when you put the the money in in a machine and you you feed it your twenty dollar bills and your hundred dollar bills and you and you and you press play, it doesn't spit money out. It spits out a receipt, and then you go to a machine, and then you turn the receipt in, and then you get you get your money. Well, that was I don't that to a certain extent the idea of a machine spitting out money made a bit of a distinction, but nobody does that anymore. Why? Because it doesn't make any sense. Once it got socially acceptable to get a receipt that you could turn, exchange for money, it just made sense to do it that way. So, and that's exactly what VLTs do. They 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 play the same, they look the same, they sound the same, they pay out the same. Every you know, almost. It's almost imperceptible, the difference. So the state knew that they were going to uh, compete against the, the Senecas. With, with, and the only limitation, the only thing that stopped them from competing in any other way was not the gaming compact, was not the, the uh, exclusivity zone. No, their own laws were the only thing that prohibited them from doing Class 3 gaming. So the state didn't give up anything. But they manipulated the language to make it sound like, oh yeah, we gave them something. And According to federal law, that something had to be worth something. It had to be substantial. It had to be worth something close. Actually, it should be worth something more than what they were paying for you. Otherwise, why would they pay for it? Why would they give you $1.5 billion over 14 years? But again, and the reason I'm bringing this stuff up, because here's where some of that subtle racism comes in. So not only do they manipulate the language in the gaming compact, which opens the door for the state to compete albeit through Class 2 gaming directly against them. But they leave out any um, revenue sharing that goes past 14 years. Now, we can make we can make three assumptions about why when that 14-year period, and, and they only laid out gaming uh, revenue sharing for um, uh, for 14 years, you know, 18% from year you know, 1 through 4, I think, and then it was from... Uh, uh, 22% through uh, 5 through 7, and then uh, 25% from uh, year 8 through 14. So that's what, and, and I may have those numbers a little mixed up, but something along the line. But it maxed out at 25% of the net slot drop of the Seneca's um, uh, slot machines to pay the state for this exclusivity that doesn't exist. But it only went to 14 years. So accor- according to the, to the words written on the compact, in the compact, that's the way it's written. So why was it written that way? Now the Senecas made a an assumption that the reason it didn't call uh, didn't lay out payments past fourteen years because what there were no payments that past fourteen years. Now the state, the the current administration, the the Cuomo administration argues, oh that was just an oversight. It it um it, it should have been in there. It's assumed that the payments would continue. Of course, there's this thing called the Four Corners Doctrine of Contract Law that says no. You can't assume there's nothing implicit in a, in a contract. A contract is supposed to be explicit. What's in there is what's in there. The four corners doctrine means if it ain't within the four corners of that piece of paper, then it ain't in there. That's a legal doctrine. I mean, and that's a, that's a legal doctrine that, that guides contract or compact law. So it's not in there now, but why wouldn't it be in there? Well, See, nobody ever asked. Well, what about the the who was who? What was the administration um, uh, that that ruled the state back in you know uh, two thousand four when this thing started? And what was that? Well, that was the Pataki administration. Well, what, what did their lawyers say? Don't know. Nobody asked. Nobody through arbitration. The Seneca, the Seneca lawyers didn't ask. 
The state lawyers didn't have to say, well, let's find out. Let's find out what did the the lawyers who negotiated this compact on behalf of New York State, what was their idea about the language in this thing? Were they that incompetent that they that they forgot? So these these sophisticated white men who's you know who created the the whole legal structure in the first place were they that incompetent that they left out the language? Did they make a mistake? Did they screw up? Or did they know? Did they know that the the this thing was going to sunset after fourteen years? Did they so? Did the Pataki representatives and the Seneca's rep, uh, representatives walk away after signing that compact, both knowing that the payments would only be for 14 years? Or did one side say, we just didn't add the language in there? Because, and, and did, they, did they leave it out because they were incompetent? Or, and this is the other possibility, did they just not mention it because they figured that could be a battle that could be fought later on? So did they set it up so the Senecas could walk away with one belief and the state could have a couple of options here. They could either stop paying after, uh, stop receiving funds after 14 years, which why, why, why would they? Or they could say, no, nah, we just didn't put the language in there. We, they, we let the Senecas walk away from the table believing they were only paying for 14 years. See, that's why beyond the four corners doctrine of contract law, there's, a, there's another legal principle that says if there's ambiguity between the colonizers, between uh, the federal government or state government or, or a corporation and a, and, a, and a tribe, <laughs> if there's ambiguity, the courts are mandated to rule on the side of, uh, of, the, of the tribes because the other folks should know better. It's their system. That's, that's basically what the courts have said. It's their system. They created the laws, they created the lawyers, they created the judges, they created all that stuff. So they're saying, if you, New York State, or you, the federal government, or you, IBM, or whoever else, left something out of a contract with the Senate, if you left something amb- ambiguous, we're going we're gonna to rule with the, um, like a treaty? Or, not just a contract, but even a law. Anything that's written that, it, that could be that the native people could interpret it one way and the white people can say, no, nah, that's not what we meant. Then a judge is compelled to say, you know what? You didn't write it right. So we're, we're ruling, uh, ruling with it. Now that's, that is a legal, that is a legal guideline. So you got to ask the question. These arbitrators know this. They know contract law. They know the Four Corners Doctrine. They know the principle of ambiguity as it relates to uh, to, to uh, legislating, negotiating, you know, um, co- creating a contract or a compact with uh, uh, or a treaty with Native people. They know all that. So why would they rule against the Senecas? My wife asked this question. She goes, well, it's obvious why they would rule against the Senecas. Because they knew the Senecas couldn't appeal it. Because that's in the compact. Another thing that the white folks uh, negotiated in the compact. They put it in there that once you went to an arbitration panel, you couldn't appeal it. It doesn't matter how bad the ruling is. And this ruling's bad. So why would two, the two white arbitrators rule against the Senecas? Because they didn't have to be held accountable. 
They just didn't have to be held accountable. You know, they say that uh, justice uh, is blind. But it ain't colorblind. Nope, doesn't need to be colorblind. Why? Because it's all white. (laughs) The system's all white. So when I talk about the subtle side of racism, it can show up in just the assumption. And and again, one of the assumptions, and, and I've heard it, you can see all of the posts. Anybody who who um who commented on any of the stuff that was in the news, whether it was the Buffalo News or, or any of the Niagara Falls papers, the the overwhelming majority of white people said, Well, of course the Senecas have to pay. And you know what? That's what the two white arbitrators said too. They said, Well, of course the Senecas have to pay. Otherwise they'd be getting something for nothing. So think about that. That's the view they had. They started with the presumption that the Senecas have to pay. And as far as these arbitrators and, and as far as the general public is is concerned, unless you show me why or how it is that you don't have to pay, so the burden's on you. The burden's on us to prove that we don't have to pay. Not the burden on the state. The state is the one getting. It's the burden should be on them to, to get couple of days we're going to you know most of uh, the united states is going to celebrate what they call thanksgiving well let's call it let's call it what it really is thanks tanking thanks taking a day because that's what it's about we didn't give this stuff to you you took it and you're still taking it and and again you don't have to wear white hoods you don't have to burn crosses or do any of that stuff on our lawns or anything else you've got the entire system rigged the media is predominantly white. I mean, even NPR, even, even look, I've I sat down to a racial equity uh, um, a session at, at WBFO, and they, and they had to recognize that they're, the, they're the local NPR station. Yeah, we don't have a whole lot of uh, diversity here in our, in our midst. And the ones who are, so if you do have a Native person, I know Ryan Zunner, and, and, uh, uh, you know, and they've got a few people of color that work there. But you know what? They have to be as white as they possibly can to fit in. Look, you got to get rid of. You can't have any of that ebonic stuff going on. Not when you're on. Not when you're on the media. Not when you're on television. Not when you're on radio. So you got to whitewash yourself as much. And not, look, and I'm not picking on Ryan. Ryan does some great work. I'm, uh, he's a friend of mine. But I know the pressure's on. They can't go too far out. But I will say one thing. I got to say before we go to the break. I at the bottom of the hour. This is the first year that I've heard multiple um, references, stories, uh, and coverage by WBFO. Not the rest of NPR. I mean, a little bit of the rest of it, but, but specifically, specifically WBFO. I used to joke that we get through our special month, and, and uh, National Native American Heritage Month, and nobody noticed because there was never anything. But I'll, I'll tell you, I was, I was a little surprised. Uh, I saw a little bit more out of WBFO. Of course, in the midst of our special month, so what do we have to celebrate our special month? Well, you get the, the President of the United States that uh, never mentions it. Ah, he writes a proclamation that gets buried in the, on the White House um, website. Well, he never really mentions it. Um, but he does mention that they're going to make it a Founders, American History and Founders Month to trample all over the top of uh, our, spe- our special month. Uh, what else do we get? 
uh, oh, we get, we get this ruling from uh, from a judge saying, oh, no, we're going to stick with these uh, two white arbitrators against the Zanagos. And what else do we have? Well, we get the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission, which was hearing a complaint about Neshaminy High School, the Neshaminy Redskins. Yes, that racial slur. That's the name of the... And so after multiple hearings, what does the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission come up with? They say Neshaminy can keep the name redskins but they have to do away with uh all images and logos that negatively negatively stereotype native americans i got news for you redskins negatively stereotypes native americans and you know what native americans negative negatively stereotype us because neither one of those are the right freaking words for us but you a bunch of white guys sitting on the pennsylvania human relations uh commission can say, well, we're going to let them keep that name. Why? Because they de- they agreed that the name doesn't hurt any Native students. Now, I don't know how they could come up with that determination unless you were able to, to really ask Native students, and not just in the Chamonix uh, High School, but unless you ask people who know something about Native people, does the name offend you? And so what does it mean to offend? And who gets to decide? Do white people get to decide whether it offends me or not? Or do we? So there's what our special month gets. Our special month gets a, a just an absolute bullshit ruling out of the Pennsylvania Human Relations uh, Commission. Human Relations. I, I like that. Human Relations. And then, of course, we get a you know a white judge, Bill Scrutiny. Uh, we get a white president. We get all these. these uh, again, uh, the, this is the, and this is the subtle racism. This isn't even the the you know the overt racism. This is the subtle stuff. This is the subtle side of racism. Like I said, justice uh, may be blind, but it ain't colorblind. We're at the bottom of the hour. We'll take a break, and we'll be right back. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. You know. I met this vampire one time Down around New Orleans My car broke down one night And he pulled up in an old rat rod He said he'd slept in that morning Because of a beautiful woman that he'd met the night before I said, Mr. Vampire Y'all don't bite me, I write you a song. He looked at me over top of those dark glasses and said, Come to Lehoo. So I wrote this song for that lazy vampire, and I hope he likes it. Cause I don't need him coming down here biting on me. Sounds like this right here Roll over pretty woman Yeah the sun is in my eyes I should have left you last evening girl Before sunrise Put me in your cellar Before I die Cover up my old rat rock and make sure with something black I'm gonna need it this evening, girl We 
And I'll be making tracks All over pretty warm Before I die Guess you don't know me Girl, I'm from another time Sunshine girl Since 1935 All over pretty warm Before I die Girl if you help me I reward you on And you will live forever girl And that's whatever girl wants All over pretty warm Before I die Thanks for coming back. You know, sometimes when I talk about some of this stuff, it just seems so absurd to me. So from what I understand, uh, Trump and and the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, um, came up with some way that they were aggressively going to, uh, you know, go after the missing and murdered indigenous women's issue. They were gonna, They were going to put one and a half million dollars, which ain't a lot of money, folks. One and a half. Just remember, the Seneca is paid... New York State, one and a half billion dollars, but they're going to put oh a million and a half dollars, spread it across eleven U.S. attorneys' offices to address missing and murdered Indigenous women. That's like that's like maybe one staff person, or maybe not even one staff person in uh, in these eleven offices. It may just be you know covering you know printed material for for all we know. By no means. Is this in any way, shape, or form uh, an aggressive approach towards dealing with the missing and murdered indigenous women's issue? But again, this is white people who have been ignoring this issue for 100 years, been ignoring the fact that that Native people in general, but certainly women being the most vulnerable, have been subject to the highest incidence of sexual abuse, highest incidence of, of again, being, you know, being disappeared and uh, and being murdered and uh, all of that stuff. I mean, this this is a bureaucratic problem. They don't need new laws. I mean, look, I heard Deborah Hallen, she's going to push a new bill that's going to strengthen uh, the effort to go to address missing. It's against the law to rape women, even Native women. You would know it perhaps if you looked at the last 100 years, but it is. It's, it's illegal to kidnap women. It's illegal to to to, um, to hold them hostage, and you know what? it's illegal to kill them. There's no new law that needs to be done. They won't enforce the ones that they have. Why? Because we live in what they call sacrifice zones. We live in areas that they don't have to pay any attention to. 
And even when, of course, Native women experience this even in places like the cities, even like New York City, even in Chicago, even in, you know, wherever. I mean, Minneapolis, St. Paul. That's why the AIM movement became something. Because women in particular, but Native people, including women, were being abused so badly in the urban environments. Now, why would there be Native people in urban environments? Well, because they had a program to force us to uh, put us into... They called it the the relocation uh, program. We're going to take people off the reservation. That way we can get rid of the reservation. We can get the native people off reservations, put them in the cities, put them in some crappy job and even crappier house. And now they can just fit into the to the bottom rungs of, of urban society. Look. <laughs> and we have allies. And that's the part that's crazy. We have allies, white allies. But, you know, I used to compare um, the Democrats and the Republicans to um, abusive parents. Not because I think that there are our parents, but but it, it's just, it, it's like having an abusive mom was, was the, uh, were the Democrats and the abusive dads. So the one that was overtly abusive to you is the dad, right? That's the paternalistic. That's the paternalism. But the abusive mom, they were still pretty abusive. And sometimes they would do it by trying to say they cared. That's the experience that we have. Racism is, I say, it's not a right thing. It's not just on the right. The subtle part of racism makes it clear that racism isn't just a, is a right thing. It's a white thing. I know that I say that, that expression all the time. That's, one, that's a John Cain original, by the way. <laughs> it's, it, it's a white thing. And and the fact that it that racism is so systemic, like I said, when you consider how we we as native people navigate in the systems around us, what do we do? We hire white people to help us. We hire white consultants, white lobbyists, white lawyers. Why? Because we're just tribal. We're primitive. We don't understand. Bullshit. We understand. But we're constantly told that you have to know the system. It's not our system. So, of course, it's not. Uh, we're not going to navigate the system the same way. So what do they say? Well, you got to hire some white folk. You got to hire some white folk. You got to play the game. You got to spend the money. You got you to pay off politicians. You've got to... You know, you, you got to make sure that you've got your three hundred dollar or five hundred dollar an hour an hour lawyer to walk into into court to represent you. Doesn't matter they do a shitty job. That doesn't matter, and they will. Why? Because they don't believe that we are distinct and autonomous. Not as a people. Here's what here's what the lawyers believe. They believe that a few things got carved out for you. And we're going to help you exploit these little carve-outs. We're going to help you exploit the, 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 the parts of the law that don't apply to you, according to our law. We're going to kind of point out where the states may have overreached a little bit, only to the extent that we can reel them back in. We're going to help you. They're not going to say, wait a second, no, your sovereignty is intact. You, ne- you never gave up your sovereignty. No, we never have a lawyer say that. We never have a lawyer defend defend that. Our distinction, our autonomy, our, our free and independent existence, there's never been a lawyer 
that is that has come across as a yeah that's yeah we agree with you but now nah, we can't do that no that's what that's what they're always going to say they're the ones on our side and you know what? and when we find a friendly politician they just stroke us too they don't believe any of this stuff do you realize how difficult it is to even have a conversation with a state legislator, let alone a federal one, to say, you don't represent us? Oh, yeah, sure I do. No, no, you don't represent us. Oh, no, but you're in my district. No, I'm not in your district. Yeah, but you're a, you're you're in Erie County. No, I'm not in Erie County. You're in the town of Brant. No, I'm not in the town of Brant. I live in the Cattaraugus Territory of the Seneca Nation. Frankly, your town is on uh, is on Seneca land. Not Seneca land is in is on your t- in your town. Your county is in Seneca land. Not our land is in uh, is is in your county. We can't even have that conversation. Why? Because they're white people. They can't they can't even get to that place. And you know what? We can't really even have that conversation with our lawyers. Yeah, we can. Some of them. We we can actually have that conversation, but they you know what they're going to tell you know what they tell us? Yeah, but that won't hold up in court. Yeah, that's not that's not going to hold up. But here's what we got. We got this little carve out. Um you want to do gaming? Here, you can do gaming under the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. You want to do a few other things that um that maybe you can get a a, a tax deduction? You can um you know, maybe uh, we can we can find some things that are not taxable. What well, what about none of it being taxable? See, the system has an assumption. The assumption is, well, again, what's the assumption that we're Native Americans? That they've won, that they defeated us, that they've subjugated us. The assumption is that we're all Americans. Yeah, we can stick the word Native in front of it. Or maybe we can say, maybe put the word tribe in front of it. I don't know. The assumption isn't that we are distinct. Or if we say, well, sovereign, you know what they, no, oh, you mean, you, you mean tribal sovereignty? No, no. How about just the word sovereignty? This, you know, and, and again, I'm not even crazy about the word. But this is what gets missed in all of this is that there's an assumption. Like, like I said, I don't mean to pick on Murray Sinclair on on the Canadian side, but when they come up with a report after the uh, on the residential schools, he said the residential schools um, uh, were resulted, you know, uh, uh, again were were what how do you put it? He said it was cultural genocide. Why'd you stick the word cultural in front of it? Why do we have to soften the words? Residential schools were genocide. Assimilation in general is genocide. Just like you don't have to murder people to commit an act of genocide against them. Kind of what I'm saying about racism. You don't have to burn crosses on lawns to be a racist. There's a lot easier ways to be racist. And you know what? There's all, all the, almost every person I've ever met, white person, at some point, can't help themselves. They slip. They're going to give me one of those, well, you people. <laughs> They'll give you the you people, right? 
or they'll, they'll say something, you know, uh, just they're, they're just, they're just bound to let it slip. Why? Because it's the way that they're raised. It's the system that exists all around us. The idea that these white commissioners from Pennsylvania could, could, could say, well, you can keep the racist name, but you have to get rid of any um, logos and images that neg- negatively stereotype Native Americans. The freaking word does that. The name Redskins does that. The fact that most people can look at blackface and say, oh, that's wrong. But they can look at redface and say, oh, that's cute. That's funny. Let's laugh at that. See, this is where the racism doesn't have doesn't require a hood and white power symbols and burning crosses. Because most people, once you have the conversation and you, and you, and you try to explain it, they'll kind of like, yeah, I get it. Uh, yeah. And you know what? And you know what that's called? <laughs> that's called tolerance. They're going to tolerate us while we explain it to them. But you know what? They're not going to respect what we just said. They're not going to acknowledge it, really. They're going to just tolerate it. So when we hear about things like tolerance, I don't want to be tolerated. I, I would rather you be upfront with me and say, no, I'm not going to tolerate you than to, than to pretend that you, that you agree with me. I mean, I'd, I'd rather see some honesty. And let me work on that. You know, look, if you're going to hate on me, let's get face-to-face on this thing. Not because, not within striking range. I'm, I'm just saying, let's get face-to-face on this. Let, let you get to know me a little bit. So you can realize that there was probably no reason to hate me or to look down on me. Look, I I get get it said to me all the time. They say, "Oh man, man, you're you're really smart." But see, what's not said is for a native person. <laughs> see, that's what. It, oh, you're really articulate for a native person. See, that's a silent part of that conversation. Jesus, you you have a great memory. You seem to remember all this stuff for a native person. See, you know, just like with, with, with black people, native people were oftentimes looked at that we had physical attributes, right? You know, perhaps we could, you know, we were good runners, good athletes, just like black people, good athletes. And, you know, and, and they would come up with this, these, these reasons. Like white people, was all about black people were bred to be physically this way and physically that way. That's why they're such Jimmy the Greek stuff, right? When I was a kid growing up, if, if I could throw a ball faster than somebody, or if I could run a little faster, or if I could flop somebody down his ball, oh, that's because he's native. It's, it's like I couldn't have anything that was um, a talent that was mine with uh, physically without saying, well, that's because he's native. No, it wasn't. I, I know some native people who are not athletes or athletic at all. I know some who are fen- fen- phenomenal athletes. And it isn't just because they were native. We're proud of those who are. And and we're not stupid because we're, we're native. We're not lazy because we're native. We're not, none of those other things work either. None of it is, there's no genetic predisposition that grants some people, you know, um, uh, you know intelligence, uh, others with coordination. That's called racism. And when you can look at somebody and say, oh, those poor people. You know what? Even when you say that, 
That's subtle racism. Because you're already looking at people as, as if they're poor. Like, like they're beneath you. Oh, we need to help them. See, if, once you say it, you're already kind of expressing it. It's one thing to help somebody. Look, there's no, there's nothing condescending about helping somebody. What's condescending is saying, oh, those poor people need help. And, and I get it. There's some people who are hearing this who just aren't getting it. They, they don't understand what I'm saying. And why? Because the first thing that, that many people do is try to defend, you know, defend their own racism. Well, I didn't mean it like that. Yeah, when I called you a redskin, I was I I was I was honoring you. Or no, when um when I assumed that uh you know, or, or when I said that you you speak well, um, I just didn't expect it to come from. Oh yeah, I did it again, didn't I? Yeah, you did. <laughs> See, that's that's what I'm talking about. I it is crazy. That somebody could be impressed by me because they just don't expect a native person to be able to, what, to even understand the things that I talk about? Let alone talk about them? That's insulting. Because we're all capable of understanding these concepts. We're all capable of, of witnessing the racism that we experience. Now, I'm not saying all of us um, are adept just like all you white folks aren't at, at articulating just what is so offensive about it. Sometimes it's hard. The subtle stuff is hard to communicate. It's not hard to feel it. Communicating feelings is, uh, is a bit of a chore. It's sometimes very, very difficult. Look, the, we're, we're part of the animal kingdom. We're not above it. And we have some of the same fight or flight um, triggers that every other species on the planet has. And nobody has to carry a sign that says, I'm going to kill you. Nobody has to carry a sign or speak it out loud. You don't have to have a lion roaring, roaring in your face to know that you're in danger. We all have, the, uh, have a way, almost intuitively, but picking up the signs, knowing when there's danger, knowing when there's uh, uh, when something is going to get offensive or is going to get uncomfortable. Now, white people, you don't experience that in most of your lives. I mean, on the on the few occasions you find yourself the lone white person in a sea of blackness or or native people or whatever else, yeah, then you can. But you know what? The likelihood is. You've already been propped up by half of those people in the room of color. You might be the white lawyer that everybody, all those black folk and all those native people are thinking, oh yeah, this guy's going to help us. He's our ally. I've been in the room. I've been in the room when the one white lawyer is standing there and everybody's like, um, oh yeah, we want to hear what he has to say. <laughs> Funny thing about the one white lawyer standing in the room when he said, look, I don't practice Indian law. Because my job is to find is, is, and again, it's very specific. My job is to recognize when white man's law is being unfairly applied to you. That's my job. You want to know about, about Indian law? Talk to John Cain in the back of the room. 
for that brief instant, everybody turned around and looked at me and then turned around and looked right back at the white lawyer at the front of the room. <laughs> he wasn't uncomfortable being in the room. I was the one that was uncomfortable being in the room. So, yeah, there's, you know, the thing about subtle racism is that even the people who are being, are the victims of the racism can participate in it. We can, we buy into it that we need we need we're, we look at our own selves and and we and we can be self-deprecating oh yeah well, yeah we can't do that we need we need some white lawyers i mean i've been listening for for 40 years i've heard people say well you guys need to spend the money and uh you got to need to hire lobbyists for 40 years i've been hearing this stuff and of course we're never going to spend as much money on lobbyists as, as our opponents do ever and, and the crazy part is we're hiring some of the same lobbyists our opponents hire. Oh, they're not going to tell us that. They don't advertise that. So every lawyer, consultant, lobbyist, you know, um, every one of them that we hire, they're not our exclusive employee. They've been building a portfolio of all the other good stuff they did for their clients. And you listen to them talk about it. Oh, here's what we did for this one. Here's what we did for that one. And and when they're saying that is that, that they're what they're saying is and they're just like you, or you're just like them. They never say, "You guys are different." We understand you guys are distinct. That your free and independent existence is still something that you think is worth fighting for, and that we have, and that we think we can assist you in doing that. They don't. They they they're never fighting for our free and independent existence. They're always fighting for us to find comfortable places within that the, within those systems of oppression. So even the folks that we hire, yeah, they're racist too. All right, hey, we're almost out of time. I, I got a couple of announcements I got to make. Um, my daughter, uh, Jamie, is turning 37 years old in a couple of days. And uh, tomorrow I'm going to go help her celebrate her 30th. She was my, my, first, my firstborn. She's where John and Brenda Kane went from being a couple to being a family. And uh, so I want to wish my daughter, Jamie, a happy birthday. Um, and, of course, then there's the, uh, you know, for every birth you celebrate, you know, there's also uh, deaths that to be reconciled. And I lost my good friend, um, Veronica Papineau, today, uh, somebody I've known for I don't even know how many years, for many years anyway. And I know she's been, she's had, uh, a long battle with with some illness, and uh, she uh, she passed passed away today. And she uh, tomorrow she will return to our mother. So uh, uh, again, I I offer my condolences and my my thoughts to uh, to her family, uh, um, who are all good friends of mine as well. And uh, tomorrow I'll head out early and head out to Onondaga to go see my friends morning the passing of Veronica Papineau. So I'll leave it at that. I want to thank you guys for listening. Um, um, you know, one of the things I didn't do, <laughs> I never did mention our sponsor, so let me do that as I go out here. I want to thank uh, Ross and Holly John and the RJE family of businesses. I want to thank Eric White in ERW Enterprises. And I want to thank um, Grand River Enterprises uh, slash uh, Native Wholesale Supply for, for supporting the show. And those of you who from time, look, I even got a few people who threw some uh, dollars at my PayPal account. I appreciate that. 
uh, spread the word. Um, um, my PayPal me link, uh, I've put it up on my Facebook group page so you can find it there. Um, any, any and all contributions to help us expand what we're doing here. We're trying to put together a little bit of an, an, uh, an equipment list that, uh, so, so Jake and I can work on a couple of, um, not only better videos, but we're, we want to do a full length documentary. So that's what we're working towards. So I want to thank the sponsors that help us do this. And I want to thank those of you who hopefully will help us do a little bit more. Again, this is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. We'll see you next time. Yowie.